Hi guys, welcome to an all fresh episode of the Mastering Agility podcast. My name is Sander Deer and I'm practicing Scrum from the Trenches myself. This podcast aims to inspire you with the industry's latest and greatest. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website now and subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date with the latest information, guest speakers, future giveaways, you name it. Hey, I don't know about you guys, but I've been working from home now for roughly a year and a half. I haven't actually been to my clients on site. And other people are getting vaccinated. Numbers are dropping. The world slowly seems to reopen. This is going to pose with a whole new set of challenges. Is this remote working going to stay? Are we going to go to a hybrid model? What does this do with the office buildings that organizations have? We have someone today in the show talking about this who has been a virtual agile coach even before the pandemic hit. So I'm really curious about his perspective and how he thinks this thing is going to evolve. Welcome, Chris Stone, the virtual agile coach. Chris Stone, how are you doing, man? Not too bad, Sander. How are you today? Pretty good. Warm still? It vessel. is. It is. It's warm there. You said you were saying earlier, it's warm here. It's better than being miserable, I suppose. It is. It feels a bit moist, but yeah, we Dutch people have to complain about the weather always. It's, it's pretty true of the UK. Um, I've been seeing some great... Uh, things being shared by friends at the moment where if it's hot we love it for the first few days and then it's like oh god it's too hot it's too hot now and now i can't cool down i can't sleep and and a lot of complaints there and then the same goes for when it rains oh great it's raining now it's gonna be great for the grass and finally i'm cooling down and when now it's when's it ever gonna stop and i don't have any plans that i can do because it's all right always raining so we always uh we love to complain about the weather we are kind of like a banana in that sense aren't we we're always green until some point that we are yellow for a little bit and then we instantly turn brown. Pretty much, pretty much. It's never good. Fair analogy, fair analogy. Hey, today we're talking about remote after COVID. Now, you are a remote agile coach, a virtual agile coach. How did you come to that point? Was that before COVID already something that you enjoyed doing? What made you do it? Well, basically, Sander, it was something I think I formalized around the time COVID happens. And, and it was a bit of a, an epiphany on my side, really. I remember there were so many coaches out there uh, talking about how co-located teams was the best way of working. And it was the golden way of working. We get our best results and things from that. And as I thought back upon my, my working experience, my roles as scrum master and coach, I realized that I'd never really had that co-located team. I often the vast majority of my work always had an element of distributed working, whether that was um, a developer, a DBA, team members offshore. Uh, and it meant that I had a lot of experience already in being a virtual coach that I figured I could I could share with others, given that everyone was forced into it so suddenly when the pandemic struck, everyone had their feet swept from under, under them and they, and they were immediately having to adopt practice and principles that enabled their teams to be successful, despite the fact that they weren't co-located, they weren't face-to-face anymore. So I adopted the moniker, the Virtual Agile Coach, and I began sharing my, my knowledge, my learnings, my my skills and expertise. And it seems that people have liked hearing what I've been sharing. So I just kept doing it. You seem to be creating a nice, good platform for yourself. Now, before the entire COVID, before the pandemic, how was the response to it? Like, I mean, most companies were before were like, 
how we can do remote work and people have to be in the office. People have to be able to look at each other. How do people respond and organizations respond to your uh, proposition in that sense that you're continuing your consistency at home? So I was I was seeing more and more acceptance of it, and but but at the same time there was always that that reluctance, that initial resistance to it. Uh, I remember working for a client in the past, and I was helping them adopt uh, safe principles, scaled agile, and we were doing this remote or geographically distributed big room or PI planning, and that was across five time zones. So it included Alaska and Trinidad and Tobago, it included the UK and Houston, and it was all these different time zones at play. And it meant that because everyone was distributed and, and there was obviously funding challenges in bringing everyone face-to-face like a traditional PI planning event and ceremony, we just had to adopt ways of working that made it work despite that. So I think when people started to see that it could be done, and they saw that it worked and that there was benefits to doing so, they started to be more accepting of it. And then it became, well, how can we set each other other up for success, set our teams up for success in ways despite not being co-located? And I think when you can do more and more of that, you can demonstrate how it can work and you can get everyone bought into the way of doing it, they're more inclined and less likely to be resistant, I find. I think there will always be a resistance and resistance and first, like like with many things, because people they get used to what they know. They they you know, people are resistant to change. We are humans and we like doing what we, we know works. We we get into a into a habit, a way of doing things, and we settle in those. And that, our first instinct is to continue doing that rather than to challenge and try something new. So I think there will be resistance to it. But as you'll have seen during the pandemic, everyone's now adopting these principles and now they're sharing them widely. And yes, there will be some companies that go back to being primarily in the office and there will be many that adopt hybrid principles and there'll be many that adopt remote first where they are entirely remote. And I think the, the companies that embrace it and and they think not about just, I guess, forcing everyone back into an office or about uh, trying to just adopt what worked face-to-face into a remote environment, but instead think about how they can enable each other to be successful Given the situation, I think those are the companies that come out on top. What, what has been your best advice when it comes to this whole, whole remote working before COVID hit? Before it, before it hit, you mean? Yeah. So I think you've got to, I, I like to say, um, coming back to the Agile Manifesto, the one of the, one of the first things, one of the first values in the, or in fact, the first value in the Agile Manifesto is individuals' interactions over processes and tools. And I think increasingly, with the technology available to us, um, we could actually re- rename that, rename that slowly, to be individuals and interactions enabled by processes and tools. And again, this isn't an either-or statement, but you can enable each other to be successful with the right tools, processes in place. I think if you can set up that ecosystem, uh, the tooling and processes that you guys use and just continually adapt using uh, inspection, adaption, retrospective practices, you can continuously course correct and ensure that you, your team, the people you're working with are in the right trajectory, working collectively towards where you want to be. So I think think for me, it's, it's all around how you together collectively create ways of working that work for your situation, your environment. I so often discourage 
companies to just adopt and copy what other companies are doing. Now, when, you, when you hear about someone saying, oh, Spotify are doing great, we're just going to call ourselves tribes and, and guilds and squads. And, and you see them just copy and pasting this exact framework, even though Spotify itself was never intended to be something that people copied. I think there's often a reluctance to see what others are doing. So we're just going to do that as well. I encourage companies to continuously experiment until they find their version of Agile, what works for them, because there are so many transformative efforts out there that, that do exactly that. They just they go after what other companies are doing. And you know, sometimes there's a transformation one and a two and a three and various iterations of it. Transformations by their very definition, I think, um, they shouldn't be called that because transformations, they suggest something that's uh, finite. You, 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 you start off as a caterpillar and you evolve into the, or you metamorphose into this butterfly, this cocoon, and then it's finished when actually it's just a continual evolution. My, um, I guess coming back to you, I've gone off a little bit of a tangent there, but coming back to your, your question, what's my, what's my advice to companies before COVID for adopting these remote working practices? It's to innovate continuously. Don't just copy and paste what others are doing. Experiment until they find what works for them, their culture, their people. I think there, there are a couple of um, interesting angles to the whole answer that, that you just gave. Would you consider rewriting the whole Agile manifesto then? <laughs> I've, I've talked about this topic many times and I've actually, I've delivered a talk on that exact topic. It's called uh, the Agile Manifesto needs an update, change my mind in this kind of debate format. And I've, I've given that a number of a number of talks and meetups. I've spoken with a number of the um, manifesto authors. I've even been on a panel discussion with some of the Agile Manifesto authors at the Agile 20 Reflect Festival to talk about is the manifesto still fit for purpose? Mine and, and many views, I believe, are that the, the values and principles, they remain highly relevant. It's just that there are things that we have learned in 20 years of learning that could also be included. What I am very cognizant of is that just adding more to the equation doesn't necessarily help things. It could complicate things. You know, the, one of the great things about the Agile Manifesto itself is it's, it's limited in wording. There aren't 50,000 principles to go through. There's, you know, four, four values, 12 principles. That's great. Um, but there are some things I think we have learned that I, I would personally like to see more of. A greater focus on psychological safety experimentation, um, a greater focus on empathy and understanding rather than just commoditization and monetization. As I mentioned earlier, individuals' interactions enabled by process and tools. The remo removal of the word software is a, is a common one, given that we know now that agile principles and practices can very widely apply to more than just software. You know, it can apply to many things. So there are a number of things I, I personally would change. And all I'm really concerned about is the fact that we are, as an agile industry, industry, as a group of individuals, as a group of practitioners out there, that we are just continually learning and adjusting accordingly and not just referring continuously back to a 20-year-old document and using it as like a, a Bible or a, a single source of truth. It should be a starting point, a set of guidelines, you know, an aspiration, but it shouldn't be the be all and end all that you don't question. You should always question everything. Isn't it interesting that it mentions responding to change while it, the manifesto itself never responds to any form of change, just continuing down the track? 
Well, again, this is this is one of the the questions that has come up in this topic. The the creators of the manifesto they have mentioned they have no desire to change the manifesto. And in fairness, you know, you can look at the manifesto as a historical document, a bit like the Declaration of Independence. It was it served its purpose in its time, and there have been amendments since. I often joke that, uh, you know, in the interest of self-organisation, we, you know, we as oft- often as agile coaches are trying to ensure and create an environment where our teams that we're working with can self-organise and not rely upon us. And I often joke that maybe that's what the the manifesto creators are doing with us. They're just saying, hey, we created something, self-organise, adjust it. You know, we're not going to just u- update it for you. It is, it do- it does interest me that the manifesto itself does talk about being responsive to change over following a plan, or over following. A document and uh, that's to me is as long as a company is doing that being responsive to change they're they're on the right the right path it's just where you see the dogmatism that's that's an area of concern for me makes sense now before heading back to the COVID thing you just mentioned about organizations looking at other organizations and basically copy pasting and trying to have that silver bullet do you feel that has that ties together with the whole Instagram generation that we seem to have, where every everything, everyone's lives and and everyone's mom needs to be an Instagram model, and as long as we do what someone else is doing, then our lives will be Instagram perfect as well. Well, interesting. This is this is one of my one of the phrases I often refer when I'm when I'm talking about not copy and pasting. Comparison is the thief of joy. It's it's so easy to look at what others are doing and think of yourself as not good enough as a consequence. You know, you're seeing another person who's achieved more or gone to a prettier place or had a better thing, and it's all very materialistic. I personally don't use Instagram um, or many social media. I think I use LinkedIn because it's a professional networking environment, so I don't tend to suffer from that as much. But I, I do think you know you're you are as a business exposed to the, the, the war stories, the success stories of others, and less the failures, because we don't, we don't talk about failure as much. No one's, no one's willing to admit to their failures and say, hey, we tried this model. It didn't go very well at all. Uh, don't do it, or it didn't work for us. And even if they did, it may not have worked for their situation. It doesn't mean that that, that way of doing things is necessarily bad. It just didn't work for them. I think, yeah, to come to, coming back to your question, I think there is uh, or can be a tendency to hear these success stories and want to copy them, you know, compare your situation to theirs and aspire towards it. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that in general people are trying to emulate success. It's it's natural. It's what it's often what we do. We we're exposed to things and we we aspire towards that. I think my concern more is that it's just the the arbitrary copying it without adjusting it for your own needs. So when uh, a person or a company g- goes in and just copies and pastes, grabs that Spotify model, applies it into their situation without perhaps helping their company understand that the core principles and values behind why we're doing it, that, you know, communicating the why behind why we're doing that and trying to build that in um, and doesn't alter that framework, that approach to the needs of that company, that situation, their people. That's the most important variable in any sort of transformative effort, the people involved. When someone does that, I think that's where it can it can be quite damaging, particularly when it might be the third or fourth attempt at a transformation that company's gone through and people have experienced negative um, versions of or, or failed transformations and they've got a bad taste in the mouth about Agile and someone new's coming in and go, oh, it's another Agile transformation, guys. The last one went so yeah. well and they can, they, yeah, they can, they, can, they can switch off from it. The flavor of the month. Yeah. Now, 
do you th- what, what do you see maybe that's a better question what do you see that has been the impact of remote working for uh, basically every company in the world uh, wherever applicable on the sense of failure like has it become more transparent has it become more oppressed what, do, what what's your perspective the impact of remote working on failure i think i think there probably is more examples of, of people hearing about how remote working's going for others because there's just more people talking about it it's a it's one of those top all things people are sharing their stories about it what they're doing you know whether they're going hybrid or remote first or whether they're trying to get people back into the office there's always a, a new article about goldman sachs trying to force people back in or Deloitte have just announced they're going. Um, they're allowing their, their their employees to choose where they work. And I think UBS today. I saw an article about UBS saying that they're going to be allowing employees to choose. So there's lots of different versions out there. Um, people talking about what they're doing. I'm not sure it's for me. I, I'm not sure I've seen for me. It translates to um, more learnings from failure yet. I don't think you're often seeing story actually no no I, I take that back I, I did read an article recently and it was four leaders at a company or various different companies sorry sharing their experiences of remote working some saying it was being great it's worked really well it made it enabled us to reduce our office profile it enabled us to uh, improve our work-life balance for staff um, with one caveat that they had to be more on top of burnout for their staff to ensure that people weren't feeling they had to be changed their desks but equally, there were other stories within that where people were saying, "Well, it wasn't, it wasn't, hasn't worked very well for us. We haven't liked it. It's re- it's reduced our ability to feel we can collaborate as well." And again, I think it's it's all contextual. You know, you need to understand why that is. Uh, there are practices and principles, and in, in fact, industries um, and cultures that are better fitted to being face to face versus virtual. My, I think my, the, the biggest thing for me is I think. Companies um, that are trying to get people back into the office, they will need to provide compelling why you know, and, and incentivize why people should come back, particularly if they're going to be losing some of that work-life balance they've gained through the pandemic. You know, There are people who have gone from commuting several hours a week um, into central London using various, trans- you know, as an example, or major cities using various methods of, of transport and they arrive at the office and it might be a bit of a stressful day and they come back tired and less able to spend time with their families, less able to have time exercising, doing things with their mental and physical health. And the, the prospect of going back to that on a regular basis must be dreadful. Uh, but that might that might be their personal experience. There might be others who love that. They, they, they enjoy going into an office. And I think that the biggest takeaway from me from all of this is that companies that offer true choice you know, that say, hey, if you are someone who loves being in the office, you know, you get your energy that way, you feel more productive there, the office is available for you. If you're someone who prefers being at home, you know, you're better able to focus, you you like having the work-life balance that affords you, that's fine. You choose to work there. And if you're someone who likes a mixture of both, that's also an option. I think companies that offer true flexibility are going to be able to attract the best talent, retain the best talent. And I think this this conflict of just con- the context, of, sorry, the, the the phrase like work from home will become work from anywhere, WFA rather than WFH. And it will be based on where you feel you're most productive. And does uh, imply a different problem of scalability, like uh, office, or organizations have their office buildings, which might might be 
potential thousands of seeds, mm-hmm. which all require their heating, their lighting, all those kind of utilities. Well, they never might be used. Now, if you offer people a choice and all of a sudden organizations see people are not coming in the office, so they scale down their office buildings and their office um, capabilities. And then all of a sudden, all of their employees want to go back to the office, which they now don't have any room for anymore. What's your take on that? Well, I think this is where companies need to enable as much flexibility as they're capable of offering, right? I would imagine, uh, or I, I would imagine it wouldn't be a scenario where suddenly thousands of people want to be in an office on the, on the same day. Um, I, I envisage a situation where the office becomes this collaborative space for quarterly style events, you know, big innovation events, team building, bonding exercises that everyone comes to on a, you know, one or two days, uh, a quarter, for example. And then primarily the office is a space where people can choose to come in and go to if, if they wish to do so. That will reduce, I guess, the size and the scale that these companies need to have these offices for. That that reduces a lot of costs on their side. It enables people to have that that flexibility to work where they feel most productive because it does it does very much differ. It is unique to your personal circumstances. You know, it's I think one of the things in the in the pandemic in particular, especially right at the beginning, you you had people who went from having an office that they could go to. Uh, to suddenly their work was being done from a, a kitchen table in the same room they eat or socialize or hang out. And they didn't they didn't have the benefit of having um, an office space like I've got or some other people have got that's separate. And then it, it made it difficult for them to focus. Um, and they had to think about techniques for separating their work and their home life. And, and it could blur things. It could make things difficult. You've got other people like myself who had the benefit of having a separate workspace. So when I close the office door just behind me here, when I close that, that's my work day done. I don't have to think about work and that can make it easier for me to disconnect. And I think that there, there has been a tendency from some to just tar each other or every area side of the camp with the same brush and assume that they've either got the workspace or they don't want to go into the office just because they haven't got this and that. And it's just there are so many different uh, individual circumstances which can determine where you feel you are most productive. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that discussion uh, where it used to be that we have to convince our bosses and our managers for us to work from home, that was going to be the other way around, where they have to convince us to go back to the office. I that's a really agree. different perspective. I completely yeah. agree. I think that's an interesting uh, dynamic there. Now, going back to the beginning of 2020, the pandemic hit. What happened to you? What Did anything happen to your business model? Did you get more work? Um, did things vanish because everyone now needed to work from home? What happened? So the beginning of uh, the 2020 for me, I was working for BP. British Petroleum. And I was self-employed, so I was contracting as a, a release train engineer, uh, an, an agile coach running a global program. And BP in particular were very heavily hit by by COVID because people weren't traveling anymore. People weren't traveling, they weren't spending on on oil. Um, their energy consumption wasn't wasn't the same as it was. So they BP themselves were reducing uh, the number of, amount of hiring they were doing. Uh, from a business perspective as well, it coincided with um, some UK legislation called IR35. IR35 was all around um, who was responsible for paying certain taxation in the UK. So a combination of those two factors meant that actually when the pandemic hit in, in March, and I was actually off on holiday for a couple of weeks traveling around US, which was 
was crazy because I was just enjoying myself in various national parks and suddenly the world was going into chaos and uh, airports and things were closing and it, and it was mad. But what basically happened as a result of the pandemic and this legislation coming in was that I took five months not working at all at the beginning because there were lots of companies that just were were nervous about hiring. Um, they didn't know what was going on. Lots of them were shutting down, unable to be uh, generating revenue. And one of the first costs that companies reduce in those sorts of times is external contractors, external companies, external suppliers. So I ended up taking five months off. And then I joined a company called Rank. I joined them on a permanent basis uh, July last year. And I've been working for them ever since as an enterprise coach. So that's how the pandemic struck me. Um, I joined... Uh, I said mid-pandemic, July last year, and I've been into an office once in that time frame. That's how it. is that for? How how does that feel for you? Because I can imagine if you're traveling up and about the US, and now just since then being in the office once, that must do something with you as well. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think I'm, again, I'm fortunate. And I was mentioning earlier, I have the benefit of having uh, a working location that enables me to separate my work and my home. I've got just to the left of me here um, is a, is a window to, out to my garden. I've got a gym at the end of it um, built to my garage, a home gym. So I, I don't I didn't have to rely on uh, going to a gyms because they were closed. So I had I had that benefit. Uh, for me, it hasn't impacted me too much because um, whilst I'm I'm very social and gregarious, I love being around people. I am equally quite happy to do what we're doing now, have a face to face conversation. You and I, I can see you. We can have conversations. And I tend to have a lot of energy and passion and create virtual environments that enables people to speak up. So I I, yeah, I, I saw that you had uh, Carsten as a guest a few weeks ago. And Carsten's a very yeah. visual, agile coach. I'm very much the same. I use Miro and mural boards and things like that to bring situations and, 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 and circumstances to life. So I've used those techniques in particular to immerse people into certain scenarios, whether it's a themed retrospective, whether that's a workshop, whatever that may be. I've used those techniques to enable myself and to build on the sort of agile coaching that I've been doing um, pre-COVID. And, and that's what I like about both you and, and Karsten. Uh, the, you give your templates away for free. I recently used the, uh, the, the Pride template, but also Karsten, who gives his, his stuff away for free. He likes to inspire people with his videos and with his, uh, uh, all of this other stuff that he's doing. Combine those two and you have a really powerful format. I really appreciate that. No problem. I mean, that's, that's exactly why I do it. I, I do it for two reasons. One, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy creating these things. And for two, I enjoy hearing the stories afterwards where people say they've used it and it's been successful and, and that, that their teams have appreciated doing it. I think and the, the, the genesis of it for me was that when I was doing, uh, when I was coaching teams and I was thinking, right, I want to do, I want to make this, this, this meeting, this workshop, this, this retro, whatever, whatever ceremony it was, I want to make it more interesting. And I was looking into what, what other resources were out there to try and do that. And there, there wasn't that much out there. So I thought, why don't I just start creating them? I started creating them and sharing them. And then people started saying they liked it. So I started doing it more. And now it's just become a, a default thing. I release a new retro template every week. I'm always challenging myself to do a different format for meetings um, yeah, it's just something I enjoy doing and I, I enjoy hearing from others as to how they're, how they're using them too. Yeah, it's cool to see that even though it's, it's relatively the same setup with the template, just the, the change of themes spy, inspires people in a different way and sparks people to think in a different way. And it's really cool to see that. 
Now, coming back to remote working itself, what do you hope is going to happen now? Now, we're slowly opening back up. Uh, the Netherlands uh, this weekend has removed all restrictions, but the social distancing, face masks have gone. You don't, you're not uh, obliged anymore to do it, uh, which is a weird experience in itself again. We have to go back. We get new challenges. Uh, what's your hope? What do you think is going to happen and what do you hope that's going to happen? Uh, two different questions entirely. What I hope is going to happen and what I think is going to happen. What I hope will happen is that companies aren't just going to revert back to the way that things were before. They're not going to just try and return back to how things were. I, I would like to see continuation of the uh, the flexibility that, that people are being offered, the, the appreciation that's your work uh, and the value of your work isn't determined by the location you're doing in. You know, I'd love to see more of that. There are so many benefits to remote work um, and the ability to, you know, so for example, you have a, a team comprised of people globally that brings a lot of neurodiversity that brings a lot of innovative thinking um, and people challenging one another to think differently. Whereas if you have a team that's homogenous um, built of people from the same location, they are, usually less likely to be able to produce as innovative results or challenge one another. So I, I think there's a lot of benefits that can be gained by these um, globally distributed teams. There is the ability to hire talents from not within just an hour or, or two from a certain city or location that I think companies can, can benefit from. And I'd like to see more embracing of, of that style of, th of doing things. Um, what I think is going to happen is that a lot of companies will adopt hybrid, not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to. People have tasted what it's like to have this level of flexibility now, and they'll be very reluctant to just go back to the way things were. Um, so I do think um, the vast majority of companies that work with knowledge workers are going to uh, adopt an element of hybrid working. And that will see, I, I think, an average of two to three days a week working physically in an office with the remainder from home. And I think the companies that don't do that are going to suffer. They're going to lose good people and they're going to struggle to attract good people in the face of what it, because if you think, you know, in the past, companies advertising a new role, they might list on it, oh, work from home is a perk. Now, I don't think it's going to be a perk anymore. It's just going to be accepted. Working from home is, is working. Um, and companies that don't do that sort of thing, I think they will, they will unfortunately suffer. Now consider this situation where we have a team and we have to go back into the office where usually we're physically located, we can see each other. And out of that team, a single guy chooses to work remotely. And for that, we have to tune in uh, via Zoom or whatever tool that we're using that has an, uh, an impact on the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I foresee this happening with a lot of organization, I can imagine that people who have the option will say, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to go to the office. I'm good here. What's your advice there? So this is where I think um, teams need to think ahead and plan for these sorts of scenarios. Don't just kind of struggle by. I am a big fan of doing of, of the concept of teams having a team charter, you know, a team set of agreements and principles. And those have been around for a while. They're not, they're not new things. But what I do think are newer and that more companies should be doing is these, the concept of this remote working charter. So in that, help 
the team or even the company. It depends on the scale you're doing at. You could do this just at the team level or you could do it at the company level. But by doing this activity um, and using like a, a virtual whiteboard of some kind, help people share what examples of good remote working looks like, what bad remote working looks like, what helps each other remain connected during remote working. What are the what are the things we can set, do to set each other up for success whilst we're working remotely? Because as you highlight, there is a great example there. Let's say you've got a team that's primarily co-located. One person, for whatever reason, isn't in an office that day. That means everyone has to behave as if you were remote anyway. Because you could have someone traveling in an hour into an office just to be sat on a Zoom call and not actually speaking with people anyway. And then, then you start to question the value in traveling that hour in because someone's not going to be there anyway. So as soon as one person isn't face-to-face, you have to behave as if everyone's remote working anyway. And then everyone has to go on a Teams call and you have to share screens and, and all that sort of thing. So I think uh, for me, the, the one piece of advice I would give here is to help each other, set each other up for success by defining and allowing people to input into what good and bad remote working looks like and how you can help each other be successful, even if you're not all face-to-face. Who do you feel this is... Uh, is accountable for this is it something for the team is that something for hr is that something for the manager who's accountable for this for for having this workshop this session yeah i think it depends on the scale um all right so my my role in my company is enterprise agile coach i would be looking to do this on behalf of the, the company across teams of teams to say right here are some practices and principles that we agree that everyone has the opportunity to influence influence into that will help us be successful in our remote working environment if it's just a, a team that you're working with, I would expect maybe a scrum master or a coach to do that on behalf of the team, you know, set that up, or even just to, to prompt it and say, here's something we could try. Remember, it's an experiment. One thing could work for, for one company. Again, I'm always against standardizing and saying every team must do this because some teams might, 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 they might already have mature principles and they don't need to formalize it in that way. But I, I do think this is something that I have seen help by acknowledging the good and the bad, letting people influence into it. And uh, again, it's, it's something you iterate upon. You might note it down and a month later you, you reflect on it as part of a retrospective and say, right, has it been working for us? Do we need to change anything? And what, what's great about these team agreements, these these principles and practices is when you, when you see people behaving that are against them, you can then call it out and say, hey, I saw some behavior last week that was against what we agreed as part of the remote working charter or remote working principles that we agreed is there a reason for that is there something we need to change do we still want to buy into that has anything have we learned anything that's changed things it gives a great way to uh, to call out or share um, examples where people aren't perhaps behaving in accordance with what they previously agreed to i'm really curious how these things are going to pan out because we needed to get used to the old remote working ways and we had to redefine the way that we work but it's going to be the same thing now where we have to go back to an old situation or a relatively new basically where we have learned a lot of new things we have faced different challenges and now we're going to face a whole set of new challenges so i'm I'm really curious how that's going to pan out and before the last question i'm always curious about people's perspective on this as it seems to to vary widely what do you mean? What to you means value? What to me means value. Yeah, Again, it's define all, the word value to you. It's all contextual, isn't it? Are we talking value in agile? Are we, are we talking my value? Or it's 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 so vague a question to me. I'd need to dig into it a bit all further. Right. In, in a context of Scrum, let's have, let's put it in a Scrum context. We're delivering value. We're 
a value delivering team, what does what does that value look like? Okay. So to me, I'd be thinking about this on two levels. Uh, the first level I'm always trying to anchor people back to is customer value. It's in the it's in the manifesto. Custom, being customer centricity is our is our highest priority. And what what amuses me is that there are so few metrics out there that focus on customer centricity. You've got kind of a net promoter score. And, and usually that's that's kind of it. And there's lots of things like velocity and lead times and all that sort of thing that people often harp on about. But how often are people genuinely checking in to see, are, are they delivering value? Are they delivering value to their customers? So there's, there's always customer value that's going to come back to that for me. And I... I'm a big believer in trying to keep the customer as close as possible to the teams. Yeah, we don't want those layers of hierarchy in between the customer and 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 the the teams delivering the work. You want to have that as flat as possible uh, to the point where I I've often advocated for the example of a, a citizen developer having a customer embedded into the team if you can, if you have, have access to someone willing to do so. Have that person sitting with the teams in the ceremonies so you get that fast feedback loop. You're regularly course correcting rather than it just being a, a demo once every two weeks or, or less frequently. Um, the closer you can keep to your customer, the more likely you are to deliver value. And, and to that end, the, the most powerful metric I've discovered over the years is something called days since last user or customer engagement. And you're trying to keep that number as low as possible. Imagine like a reverse a security instance countdown when you're at one of those power plants or something and you see days since last incidents and there's usually a high number on that because you want to try and keep that number really high you want a long time for last incident in this situation you want to try and keep that that number of days is like one zero right really low so then you know you're frequently interacting with users and customers you're frequently course correcting checking that you are on the right path the other type of value i'd be thinking of here and I think this stems from my desire to be a very people first agile coach is are the people I'm working with getting value from how they're working, how they're doing things is the way that we are working together valuable to them. Because I, again, I'm an advocate of um, not calling people resources you know, and not treating them like you. resources. Um, I, I, if I could do anything right now, if I had a magic wand and I had power, I would say, we no longer call it HR. We call it employee experience or something like that. There's lots of big companies out there that are that are calling it people operations, employee experiences. They're, they're changing HR because HR in itself, human resources, keeps reinforcing the fact that people are resources. So um, for me, the other element of value, to come back to your question here, is trying to create an environment systemically where people feel like their working lives are valuable to them and they enjoy their working experience to the point that I'm a firm believer in bringing fun back to the workplace. This is where the sorts of themed themed retrospectives, the, the themed meetings, all those things that I do to try and help a person's experience be that much more enjoyable comes in. I love that answer. The, the entire answer. I love that. The day since last customer interaction. I'm definitely gonna steal that format and put it in the in the show notes. But also moving away from H the term HR and more of uh, calling people people. That seems to be a very reoccurring thread throughout these podcast series. I mean, it already started with one of the first episodes with Gunther Verheyen. Stephanie Ackerman talks about it. Patricia Kong talks about it. I think it's one of the most offensive terms that you can call people. So the entire term human resource already can go down the bin yep. if it were up to me 
I did something a bit silly uh, last year. I was, I was, um, I, you know, I don't know why I was just in the mood to be uh, disruptive. And I basically, I tagged uh, 10 different people on LinkedIn that were titled HR director or something from 10 big companies in the UK. I said, hey guys, why are you still called HR? Um, aren't, aren't, haven't we learned that people aren't resources by now? Um, just, just because I wanted to get at least just one to person to think differently. I wanted to provoke, provoke thinking. And the, the outcome wasn't necessarily just to be uh, disruptive. It, it was just to challenge people to think differently. To just, just Because I, you hear it all the time. And I, I don't think people are always doing it with ill intent. You, know, you, you hear in a meeting, oh, uh, our, we're, we're, we're a little bit behind on our project because we need more resources. And I always say, well, what, what do you mean there? Can you just clap? What do you mean by resource there? And they kind of, they kind of um and ah a bit, and then they go, "Oh yeah, um, well, I meant people." It's like, well, this is a pen. This is a resource. This is this is a laptop. That's a resource too. Yeah, it's a physical thing. This chair behind me is a resource. A person's a person. Um, we can't keep calling people resources if we want them to feel like they're they're people, especially. Now we're in this um, very distributed work- working world with the pandemic in particular and the, the increase in remote working. It's going to be easier to abstract people into just resources, to numbers on a spreadsheet, because they're often just names behind a screen, especially if you haven't got everyone on camera and they're just, they're just a line on a Slack channel, just a name, and, and it's easier to dehumanize them. We need to con- be constantly reminded that people are people. They are beating hearts behind the machines that we're talking to. And uh, we want to treat them accordingly. We want to have engaged people. We want to have an engaged workspace. So we need to Absolutely. engage them Absolutely. instead of calling them like stupid resource. Yeah. Now, last question to you. You've mentioned you're giving away your templates and such for free. You have a podcast series yourself. Where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? Many places. So uh, on my LinkedIn, uh, the Virtual Agile Coach is my name. I share all of my my content there. Uh, my YouTube channel, again, the Virtual Agile Coach. I have my own podcast there and lots of videos on on various agile topics, uh, including workshops on uh, remote retrospectives, how to use Miro, um, all manner of things. And last of all, www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk is my website. There's almost 50 different Miro templates and mural ones. There's lots of mural ones on there too for retrospectives uh, and also lots of agile games there too because I'm a big believer in using games to provoke different thinking to help people learn topics and concepts. You sound like my kind of guy, man. (laughs) Awesome. Chris Stone, thank you for, for being here. No problem. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sander. Thank you. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us 